Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello and welcome back to the What We Said podcast. My name is Chelsea. I am the half brunette, half blonde half of the podcast. A million halves. <laughs> hey guys, I'm JC. I'm the redhead one, but you know what? My red's actually growing out a lot, and I'm feeling a little bit— Are you the brunette one I'm now? like, I think I'm brunette and you're blonde now. That would be crazy. We should just do it someday. You should just dye your hair brown. Uh, no. When was the last time your hair was brown? High school. Oh, my gosh. It's, it was, do it. It's not a vibe on me. Really? I'm meant to be a redhead. Yeah, the redhead just looks perfect on you. Just flows. Okay, so today we have an amazing episode ahead. We are talking to Alexis Haynes. And if you don't know who Alexis Haynes is, she has her own podcast called Recovering From Reality. She's also an author. She wrote a book, Recovering From Reality. And she has an incredible story that she shares with us about overcoming sexual abuse, um, drug addiction. She had her own reality show called Pretty Wild, which was pretty wild, as you can guess. And she also was in the news for The Bling Ring. I don't know if you guys remember that or if you're too young. But they actually made a movie about it starring Emma Watson about that situation that she was in. Um, So, yeah, she has an incredible story. Make sure you guys stay tuned and listen to it. It's really powerful, and and I know that you will get a lot from it. Yeah, definitely. One of our best episodes, honestly. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be really, really good. So make sure you guys stick around to hear our interview with her. Um, But first, we we have to talk about a few things. It's time to chat, everyone. I went to the Tame Impala concert, just barely, and— And she has corona. I'm like, and now I have the virus. No, it actually was freaking me out, though, because, like, I got some food from the concession stand because I was starving, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, I'm scared. I'm yeah. scared to do—you know what I mean? I mean, you don't want to live in fear, but it's, like, so many germs when there's a bunch of people around. Yeah. So, anyway, Kind of makes way, you more aware, all, in general, of germs. Yeah. Like, not just of coronavirus. You're like, oh, there's actually so many things I could catch. I should totally. probably a little more— yeah, germophobic. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say, by the way, the concert was really, really amazing. I know. I'm anyway, so jealous. That's from that's for a different time. But let's talk about what you missed while you were at the oh. concert and had to watch at one a.m. Oh. So I okay. The Bachelor finale was the night of the concert. It was part two of the finale was literally it started at eight o'clock. So did the concert. So I was like, dang, I'm gonna miss the Bachelor finale, which. I said this on my Instagram stories. This was the season that I was the most, I'm like, I need to know what happens at the end more than I ever have been for a season ever. So I'm like, the fact that the one event, it's like, I don't even get out of my house that much. Mm -hmm. It's like the one event I've had planned for months lands the same night as the Bachelor finale. It was just funny. Yeah. But you know, we got home at midnight. We started right up on the Bachelor finale. Leif and I watched it together, stayed up for the whole thing. We were on the edge of our seats. And 
there is so, so much, much we can unwrap. dive into. So many thoughts. The whole so time I thoughts. was watching you with my little brothers, I was fuming, first of all. The second half. We're mostly talking about the second half. The first part of the finale was a little bit suspected, and it was a little weird that Barb was— I don't even know where to start, to be honest. Yeah, we, we let's need start to— with, let's, start, let's go by people. Okay, so just talk let's about start, the person. Let's start with Hannah Ann. Okay. Never in a million years did I think Barb was talking about Hannah Ann when she said, don't let her go. Thought it was Maddie the whole time. Yeah. That tweet made me laugh so hard. <laughs> that was like, people I thought Barb was referring to when she said, don't let her go, bring her home. And it's like, number one, Madison. Number two, you know. Hannah Brown. Hannah Brown. Number, number three, three, the producer. <laughs> yeah, the producer. Number four, Kelly. Number five, like a random dog on the street or something. Yeah. Just all, and then it was like number 137, Hannah Ann. Like, it, it was so shocking. Mm-hmm. It was such a turn of events. It, it really was crazy. I will say, I think we just need to talk about the finale. We can't go into the season no. because it's literally, we, this episode could be three hours long just mm-hmm. about that. Like, there is so much to unravel here. But I will say a few things. First of all, I like Hannah Ann. I, Hannah Ann grew on me in one episode. Yeah. Yeah. Part one of the finale, I was like, okay. Yeah. The thing about it is that I feel like her personality I feel like her edit, like her personality was not shown very much throughout the season. So the whole season, it's never that I like disliked her a lot. It was just, I felt like I didn't know her. Like I didn't understand. I'm like, they don't really have chemistry because it never showed those like really special moments between them. Yeah, you almost disliked her by default because you liked other people better. Yeah, because it just felt like their relationship was very surface level. So when he proposed to her, I was actually very shocked. Mm -hmm. I was she was shocked. And she <laughs> was even more shocked. Yeah. She was the most shocked, actually. Which we were saying is kind of telling and kind of mm-hmm. weird that she was that surprised. Like, she almost didn't come to the finale even because, or, you know, to the proposal because she's like, I'm the second choice. Like, mm-hmm. I'm feeling, like, you know, insecure kind of. Yeah, is what it's the like vibe she we almost went to be broken up with. Yeah. She, she, and the, the look on her face, she was expecting to be broken up with. And then she was so taken aback that she was the one that he was getting on his knee for. Yeah. And I said, I, d- I didn't feel like during the proposal, something just fell off. Like, she was so shocked. Mm-hmm. And just when he was like, I love you, I'm like, I don't know why, but it's just not sitting well with me. Like, yeah. it didn't feel right. And I don't know how else to explain that. But a lot of the Bachelor finales, they actually do feel right. Like, you're like, yes. Like, this couple, you can tell they're, they're in meant love. To be. They're meant to be. But like, with this one, I was just like, something is amiss. Mm-hmm. It's not feeling good. No. Um... And Hannah Ann, it's it is sad because she really did give him her one hundred percent all going into it. But like we were saying, in a real relationship, she was almost too cool for it to be like feel real. Mm-hmm. Because in real relationships, there are ups and downs because you have so many feelings and there's like so many emotions and whirlwinds. And it's like um, Peter's dad said, like in the beginning, it should be bliss and whatever, and that's true. But not in this situation. Not in this situation where he's dating 28 other girls and having sex with other girls. Right. It's like, uh, that's, yeah, it should be bliss because you go on a first couple dates and you're like, in love. Yay, he paid yeah. for me. And it's like, yay, everything's great. We love each other. But this is not a normal situation. So no. it's never going to be 100% bliss because they are setting him up for failure. Exactly. Basically. It's so sad. I, so I feel so bad for her. And, and genuinely, she did grow on me in one episode. Yeah, she did. And when he went and broke off the proposal with her, 
I was really impressed at how she stood up for herself. Mm-hmm. Like, I, that was the first time I was like, oh, you, I kind of felt like she was a submissive, just like, oh, just go with the flow person. And then in those moments, she was like, you took this away from me. Like, this is not cool. And I, I actually respected when she stood up for herself. Yeah. I'm like, yes, like we stand a queen who knows her worth. I thought, I, I really respected that. At the finale, this is what I will say. So I respected everything when he broke off the proposal. Like, that really does suck. And it's like she was saying, like, you should have told me Madison went home. Like, I should have known that information before I said yes. And I agree. I Mm -hmm. I think he should have told her that. And he should have given her all the information. Um, That being said, at the finale, I also— she had her points. She had her points ready to rumble. She was like, you know— She she had these prepped. She worked with a PR person. Oh, you know. Like, she was ready. And she— you know, gave him her thoughts. And when Chris Harrison asked her, wait, 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 can we talk about really fast backtracking? At the proposal, when she came out of the thing, she was like, hi, Chris Harrison. Yeah. I was like, why'd you say his last name? I know, it's weird. I don't know why. I was like, well, why did she say his last name? It was so funny I also me. felt so bad for her when she's walking in her heels, getting stuck in the dirt. Yes. I was cringing. I was like, oh, guys. I mean, I, at one point she got onto like wood slats or yeah. whatever they were. I know. But while she's walking in the dirt, I'm like, really, guys? You couldn't have, like, gotten grass or yeah. something. Or even, like, just cement. Yeah. Literally just paved the cement thing for Well, I'm saying, heels. like, put it somewhere. Like, yeah. set it up a little better. Yeah. They know they have heels. Yeah. It's literally, like, quick Yeah, it was not a vibe. Um, but anyway, at the After the Final Rose, when she sat down next to Peter and she gave her thoughts, I was like, okay, okay, we still stand a strong queen. But when Chris asked her for the final word, the only thing I wish the was— The final a, word? Yeah, the final word. <laughs> um, the only thing I wish was different was that the final word was a little bit more— a little bit more compassionate. That was all—that was the only thing I was like, uh, just because she—I think her final word was something like, if you want to, you know, be a, a woman. woman, if you want a real woman, you better be a real man. And I'm like, okay, that's, you know, that's true. But I feel like the ultimate response would have been, you know, something like, just wishing him the best. Like, yeah. be like, this journey has been really hard for me and, like, I'm still hurt, honestly. Um, but I do wish you the best and, like, you know, kind of leave it at that. I would have been, like, yes. Mm-hmm. Like, a compassionate, strong woman who knows yeah. her worth. I'm not saying she's not that, but I feel like she is still so hurt and yeah, so, so humiliated. Fresh. It is so fresh. This mm-hmm. only happened a few weeks ago. So I, that being said, I do understand why she was just, like, railing on him. Yeah. Because she's like, you're the worst. Yeah. And she said everything that she wanted to say. Like, she had everything calculated. The Hannah B. bomb that she dropped. Like, so subtly, she knew exactly what she was doing with that. 100%. Mm-hmm. And I feel so bad for her. Both situations, though. Because when you get in a relationship, it's not a promise that you're going to have a happy ending no. anytime. So you don't— you're not entitled to a happy ending every time. You're entitled to your happiness. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you're entitled to getting married and, and whatever, having— with one person because right. there's two people in the relationship. So that being said, when you're coming on to this thing, it's like, I'm not trying to, you know, take away the validation of her being hurt 100%. It's horrible that she got proposed to and then got that taken away from her. He broke up with her. I would be fuming as well. But at the same time, you have to know these things are possible. And it's not like, do you know what I'm trying to yeah. say? Like, it, it's not a crime. Right. To get broken up with. Exactly. And and this is what we talked about before, too. He is just being honest. Mm-hmm. So people are like, he's the worst. It's like, okay, would you have preferred him? Yeah, yes, let's he move made on it. to poor Peter. Yeah, let's move <laughs> on to Peter. He he made a mistake by proposing to her. He wasn't ready to do that, um, I don't think. But at the same time, 
he's at least being honest with her. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, America, would you have preferred that he lies to her for the next few months and, you know, shows up on After the Final Rose all happy? Yeah, we're engaged. And then a month later, he's like, bye. Yeah. Because, you know, the show's over. Yeah. It's like he's being so honest and vulnerable with her saying, hey, look, my heart is still in two different places. I'm feeling super conflicted. Um that's respectable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not ideal for her. It's like, cool. Again, it I don't, sucks. Yeah. I don't want to hear that. But it's like, well, would you rather hear honesty or would you rather me fake it? Fake it for you. And yeah. I think honesty always wins. And that's, he was just following his heart and being honest. And it does suck that he proposed to her when he wasn't ready. And I think like he probably shouldn't have done that. But at the same time, what he said was, I've gotten my heart broken so many times throughout this process. And with Madison, you know, I, my heart has always healed. And so with Madison, I thought that pain was temporary with her. And I chose Hannah Ann. I chose, like, on paper, it seemed like the best, you know, like, yeah. she is a, the girl for me. My parents are obsessed with her, which we'll move on to in a second. Oh, um, my blood's boiling yeah. thinking about it. Like, yeah. my parents are obsessed with her. She, you know, she's kind. She's sweet. She's loving. Like, this is just the right choice. This is what like, I'm supposed to yeah, do. Yeah, this is what I feel like I'm supposed to do. And— then he said, like, the pain, unfortunately, wasn't temporary away. with Madison. Like, after weeks after, he's still thinking about her. And he's like, well, crap. I thought after I proposed to Hannah Ann, you know, everything, the, would, be everything would be fixed yeah, and fine. Yeah, I chose her. And I would choose her and it would be fine. And it, it didn't happen like that. And it's no. like you said, Chelsea, like, sometimes you don't know the potential of a relationship until you give it 100%. Yeah. So he had never given 100% to either Hannah Ann to or anybody. Madison. He's been dating 28 girls. Yeah. So how are you supposed to know? And we were saying, we were talking about this earlier. Sometimes you have to go down the wrong route first and make sure that that's the wrong one to know for sure the right one is the right one. Totally. So we were saying in both of our relationships, JC's and mine, we both had similar situations where that's like, how it worked out for us. Right. And that's how we were so certain about the person we were with. Like for with Nick, for example, like we started dating. I wasn't sure about it. It wasn't like right on paper. My mom, for some reason, didn't really like him that much. And I was like, okay, yeah, I have this other guy who I'm supposed to be with. Everyone wants me to be with. It's going to be that love story, whatever. Had to go back to the other guy, give it 100%, then realize, okay, no, for I don't, sure, yeah, I have to be with Nick. But if I would have gotten with Nick and gotten married to him, just the first time, I would have never known for sure. Totally. And it's the same thing with Ari and Lauren are married and have right. a baby because he went with the wrong one and the one he was supposed to go with realized it was not right and got with Lauren and now they're happy as ever. So right. every time this has happened, yeah, it's only happened two other times. I think I could be wrong. No, I think it was just two other yeah, times. Yeah, two other times. And both times, they've literally gotten married and had children with the person yeah. that they, like, re-proposed to. Because and, like, you're so certain. Because you're so certain. And not to say, this is what terrifies me, is that I don't know for certain that Madison and Peter will work out. No, I don't Honestly, think they will. because a big part of that is his family. Mm-hmm. And, I, well, okay, let me say this about Peter, because— I love Peter still. After this, everyone was saying he was the worst bachelor ever, and I completely disagree. Give him I a freaking break. I don't think anybody who is the bachelor or bachelorette should be like, he was a good one or he was a bad one because this is dating. Right. Like, no, and we were saying nobody just, the first person they date, they make the right choice the first time. This is love. Like, right. love is never a perfect right choice. There's never— It's messy, and it's—you make mistakes. Yeah, and you have to go with your gut. There's no, there's no plan— there's no right answer. Nothing ever goes according to plan. And any, if you're in a relationship, everything's gone according to plan. You're an alien. Yeah. Like, that's just not. 
Well, I feel reasonable. like everyone has complaints. Like, even with Hannah B, like, everyone loved her, but then, like, everyone was so annoyed that she kept Luke P for so long. They're like, she's an idiot. Yeah. It's like, okay, just let let people yeah. run their course. And, like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And Peter looked at this finale. I'm like, oh, I feel so he bad He is for him. unwell. Like, mm-hmm. he has been broken down. And at this point, and we're going to get into this basically just right now because we got to speed things up here. Yeah. But, um. He's been broken down by everyone. America is like, oh, he's the worst bachelor. Everyone hates him. All the girls are like, he's the worst. Like, yeah. you know, all these ex-girlfriends think he's made all these horrible decisions, whatever. He's hated by so many people. It's like, okay, the one support system I have is my family, right? Wrong. <laughs> because his, <laughs> gotcha. his family is not supportive of him or his choices and publicly humiliated him oh, yeah. last night to a point where I'm like, this is— It did I, not feel real It did it. not feel real. And I am a person, too, where I always— Like, I so rarely come out on, like, social media or on the podcast and, like, speak against mm-hmm. someone because I'm just like— You can always see, like, different people's sides yeah. to things. But this was an example of something that I was just like, this is straight up disrespectful, yeah. unacceptable— and the fact, like, there are people in my DMs when I said this that are like, no, like, I'm team Barb. Like, I stand Barb. And I'm like, why? Literally unfollow me. This, yeah. like, this was not okay. We're taking a quick break, you guys, to talk about morning routines. This is something that Chelsea and I have both been trying to nail down in our lives. And it's very, like, powerful to have a good morning routine. It sets you up for success. And something that both of us incorporate into our everyday routine is ritual vitamins. So this is for all our ladies out there. Even if we are trying to be the healthiest we can be, we're eating our green, you know, drinking our green juice every day, there are still most likely certain essential nutrients that we need on a daily basis that we're not getting. That's just how it is. And so that is where Ritual comes in. It is an obsessively researched vitamin for women, and their essential vitamins have the nutrients that most of us don't get enough of in our everyday diets. And the nutrients are all in their cleanest, most absorbable forms with no shady ingredients or additives. Um, So basically, you take two capsules a day. And I always like to mention that the aftertaste is minty because I freaking hate taking pills. And especially when they're like chalky or like fishy, I'm just like, oh, this is like, this is not a vibe. You know what I mean? So they have this minty aftertaste and also they have prenatal vitamins. So if you're trying to get pregnant, If you're thinking about it, you know, in the near future, or if you are pregnant, prenatal vitamins are awesome to take. And those particular ones have an aftertaste of like lemon. So they just taste good and they don't make you feel sick and disgusting. They also have a no-nausea capsule design, so you can take them on an empty stomach. The packaging is minimal, branding is great, and that's just, you know, the icing on the cake. Because we love a clean, healthy product that's also beautiful on our shelves. Mm -hmm. You also don't have to go to the store to get them because they are delivered every month right to your front door. So it's super easy and you'll never miss a day. This really is, we've talked about this before, a great way to get water in in the morning. I'm horrible at drinking enough water, but when I take my ritual vitamins, I make sure I drink a whole glass of water along with them. So it is really an easy, great additive to your morning routine. Better health does not come overnight as we know. And right now, Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off during your first three months. So fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash what we said to start your ritual today. Get it, punny? That is 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash what we said. Imagine if your mother, if my mom did that on national television, literally humiliated me, wanted me to fail, basically said to everybody after everyone already 
doesn't believe that I can make good choices. Right. You're standing there victim to everybody else's opinion. And then your mom, the one person who's supposed to be your rock, says to everybody in the nation that she hopes you fail and that this is not going to work and that everyone that you know in your life says it's not going to work and you're making a terrible decision. Who do you have? Because he's not even really dating Maddie at this point either. So he's just completely on his own. Everyone's against him. He literally just tried to follow his heart and do the right thing. And his family is... Okay, and this is the other thing about Barb. If you didn't watch the finale, like you need to go watch the finale because basically, if you don't know what we're talking about, Barb really, really dislikes Madison and she loved Hannah Ann. So just mm-hmm. that's just a side note. So the whole time she's, she's, we haven't even gotten, I'm just assuming everyone has watched yeah. because if you haven't, if then you haven't, probably you like, basically just did watch it. Yeah. I was talking about it, but, you, but basically Madison and Peter are kind of back together. Yeah. They're in ish. the very first couple weeks of them getting back together. But again, their families are literally the Capulets and the Montagues and they're Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Because it is horrible. It, it's just not, that's such a toxic place to be in a relationship. It's like, you, there's no, I hate to put this out into the universe, but it's going to be so hard for them to make it work yeah. because of that. I've never and seen, because they're both so family oriented. It's yes. not like they both are like, yeah, whatever, like my no. parents. He literally I, lives at home. I have never seen something like this on The Bachelor or on no. TV. Like, I don't, I was saying, I don't even know what Colton's parents look like. Yeah. Like, the parents are never this huge of a part of it, but. Like, she just made a statement, and I honestly think it is so selfish. Like, Mm -hmm. the way she goes about it, it's like, even when Chris was like, okay, so what are your thoughts now, Barb? I'm like, can you not hold your tongue for for national television for your son's sake and just say, you know, it's been really hard for me to, like, you know, overcome this because I really loved Hannah Ann, but that being said, I love my son. Yeah, that being said, I love my son and I respect him and I'm, you know, hopefully excited to get to know Maddie and we'll see where it goes. This is the other thing that I was going to say about Barb is she was the only person throughout this whole thing that humiliated herself 100%. Nobody, she brought her, she brought it upon herself 100%. That's why I don't feel bad for her at all. Maddie is a golden child. I will have love for her until the day I die. She was stood up for what she believed the whole time. She never pushed her beliefs on anybody. She never told Peter he had to be a certain way. He he liked her. Right. This is what I'm trying to get across people. People are like, she's the Luke P. I'm like, absolutely not. She's no. not a Luke P. She has her beliefs. She voiced them. Let's keep in mind, he fell in love with her. He loves yeah. her. He is choosing to give her roses. Mm-hmm. She's She's not forcing her beliefs on anyone. She is just literally, and she's voicing them in a very respectful way. Yeah. Luke P was controlling. He literally told Hannah B, you should not be doing that. Like, I want to make sure you are not doing that. That is very different than saying, these are my beliefs that I've had for a very long time. Um, well, this and let's is how remember, I feel. Let's remember you, Luke P got sent home and then came back and kept pushing Right. Her. So it's not like Hannah, when Hannah B was like, I, I can't do this. He was like, okay, I respect your beliefs. Right. Which Maddie did. Right. Luke P came back twice. No. And tried it, to it push her so into a relationship. It is so different. It is so different. She stood up for her beliefs in a classy way. Um, it's not crazy that she doesn't want him to be sleeping with other women two days before he proposes to her. I'm no. sorry. It's not crazy. And people are like, no, she knows what she signed up for. It's The Bachelor. No. This becomes their real life. They are going to marry this person forever. Yeah. It does matter to them. And— also, like I said on my Instagram story, why are we all acting like it is impossible? It is completely out of the question no. that they would um, not have sex in the fantasy suites. 
No. That's not out of the question. A lot of people, a lot of bachelor couples have done it where they don't have sex. Yeah. It's literally, the fantasy suites are so important and so special because it's your one time off camera. Yeah. That's the only reason, really. Like, yes, sure, a lot of them do have sex, but that is not a, no one has a gun to Peter's head saying, you have to sleep with all of these women to figure it out. No. So that is a choice. And like, I don't get why people are like, that's how The Bachelor is. I'm like, it doesn't have to be. It's no. whatever it is. And it's- also, you guys watch to watch real relationships. Right. So you, what way do you want? You want them to just go along with what the show wants them to do, and then they break up a right. week after? Or do you want them to be real with their emotions and go Say how on they actually expecting feel, expecting a real relationship, and then you guys berate them either way? I know. If they go on there and they're just saying, like, the perfect Bachelor things. Yeah. And then if they go on there and, and act like a normal person would in any relationship. Which they is get, how it's Maddie like damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. Yeah. But no. yeah, Maddie was honorable, respectful. Honestly, she held her tongue in a time when anybody could have literally turned everyone against Barb. She could have been like, she could have wrecked Barb. Right. And been because like, everyone's no. on her side for yeah, the most part. Yeah, she could have called her out for so many things, but she chose to be respectful. Yeah. And that... In that and of itself is the most, yeah, is the most like respectful thing a woman could do. Yes. And when you're getting, first of all, by a woman who's way older than right. you, getting torn apart, wishing you ill will, and saying that because you're not okay with her son having sex with other people. Imagine if Maddie had sex with two other people right. while she's dating Peter, but because Peter's the bachelor, it's he fine. can. And that's what she was trying to get across. Like, right. just because he's the bachelor doesn't mean that he's more important in this relationship. Which is, which what, is true. And which it's is not what just Barb about him. was wanting to get across. That right. like, hey, well, this is The Bachelor. Like, you knew what you signed up for again. It's like, it becomes real life. There's two of us in this relationship. I'm not going to throw away everything I've ever believed in for a TV a show. show. Yeah. Sorry. And and because this relationship, I want to be real. Right. I I have so much respect for Madison. I, I really have respect for all of them in the situation, except for Barb. Yeah. I do think I'm proud of Hannah Ann for standing up for herself. Yeah. I think Peter has been torn apart way more than he deserves. Yeah. He literally looks so depressed, which honestly just breaks my heart. I like, just think about human, what he's doing today. He's a human being. And hopefully he's just laying in bed sleeping and just oh going to the therapist. Be on Like, him and his family need to go to family therapy. <laughs> Immediately. Immediately. He needs to move out of their house because she will be a horrible mother-in-law to any girl, even to Hannah Ann, because you know she would be so in their business. So controlling. Like, even if she loves you, she'll be taking sides, wanting to know every little situation. Everyone hug your mother-in-law <laughs> because she would be horrible, uh, and that's why he's not dating anyone. That's yeah. probably why he's not married at this point. Oh, my god. Because he's such a good guy. He is such a good guy. I love guy. Peter. He's a catch. I, I love him, too, and I do have respect for him still, mm-hmm. even after all this. He's a freaking human being. He makes mistakes, but we all make mistakes. And He owned up to them. He owned up to them. He did not try, and he held his tongue. I'm just like, let's let's respect him. Let's yeah. give him a break. Seriously. He has been through hell mm-hmm. these past few months. Like, I can't even imagine what he's going through. No. Anyway, we really yeah. do have got to wrap it up. Um, Wow. Um, All right. Well, that was longer-winded than we anticipated, but seriously, we're, we're actually going to dive into it more next week as well, so stay tuned for that. Um, If you guys did not watch the season of The Bachelor, sorry. honestly, I'm sorry for all of this talk. Maybe you should go back and watch it, though, because it's really crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, But that being said— We are so excited to have Alexis on the podcast. You guys are going to absolutely love her and all of the value she's going to bring. So here she is. 
All right, you guys, we're going to take a quick break to talk about beauty counters. So they have moisturizers, they got makeup, cleansers, sunscreen. Beauty counter has it all. I'm going to tell you my favorite product from them before we get into the details. It's called Dew Skin, and it is kind of like a tinted moisturizer almost. Yeah, it's almost. like full coverage moisturizer, basically. And it's super light. I put it on. I don't love to put a bunch of makeup on my face because my skin gets broken out. And then it's just a black hole of problems because then you put makeup on and then you break out. Then you have to put more makeup on to cover up the breakout and your breakout. That is else. truly the worst, actually. So I love this foundation or moisturizer, whatever you want to call it, especially because it's super light. It goes on. It doesn't look like cake face or anything like that. And it makes you look super glowy. Mm-hmm. So every time I put it on, it literally makes it look like dew skin, which is probably why they named it that. And they have all different shades, of course, so that you can pick your best one. I also will occasionally put, I think I said this on one of our last episodes, I'll put the dew skin just on my cheekbones and like on my nose right here just to make it glowy. Like sometimes I, if I don't put like full on foundation on, but I'll just like put on my cheekbones because it just gives you that like mm-hmm. illuminated glow. You look healthy. Yeah. You already know that it's a priority to eat clean and tidy up your home with safer cleaning products. So why do we still put on makeup and skincare products that contain questionable ingredients? And that is why we love Beauty Counter. Not only is it beautiful on your face, but it's good for you. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding a light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use every single day. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand, creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. I really am obsessed with their classic velvet eyeshadow palette. It has the best neutral shades. I literally use it all the time, and I was actually just talking to Kristen, and she said it's literally her favorite eyeshadow palette. It is so good. I highly, highly recommend it. On our story, actually, really fast, I had a video of I swatched one. I'm trying to be Kylie Jenner, you know? and put it on and it's you can go see it for yourself on our what we said podcast instagram stories um so they have a rigorous ingredient selection process and they educate people on questionable and harmful ingredients to avoid and advocate for more health protective laws for the beauty industry so in conclusion we stand beauty counter um their mission is to get safer products into the hands of everyone because they believe that beauty should be good for you so for a limited time new customers can get 10 percent off your first purchase of 100 dollars or more at beautycounter.com with promo code what we said that is 10 percent off your entire order of 100 dollars or more at beautycounter.com but only if you use the promo code what we said beautycounter.com promo code what we said restrictions apply all right well welcome alexis to Hi. our podcast thanks for having me thank you for being here we're super excited so For anyone who's not familiar with you or your story, we thought we would kind of just give you free reign to tell us your story in your own words because it's so powerful and fascinating. And we were talking before that we could go down a million different avenues in this podcast episode. Um, But we kind of just want to hear, like, to start off where you grew up, what your childhood was like, and then you can kind of just go from there. Yeah, it's really interesting. People know me from Pretty Wild or The Bling Ring but they don't really have any context outside of that. So when they hear about my childhood, they're often pretty shocked because it was not at all what it looked like on the TV show. It looked totally different in real life. So for me, I grew up in Southern California and it was really an interesting time in the 90s. There were the riots going on and there was this huge earthquake. And um, my dad was this like, big hotshot director of photography um, on Friends and The Nanny and all of those 90s sitcoms. And he met my mom. They fell in love and they had me. 
Um, But by the time that I was three, they divorced. And my dad had had an affair. My mom did not know how to deal. And she really struggled. It was really, really challenging. My dad has dealt with alcoholism and addiction his whole life. And um, I would consider him to be like borderline manic. So that means he has really high highs and very low lows. And they happen sporadically. You never know. And so my parents separated. I was a little over three. And there was also some incest and sexual abuse, which was considered rape. I know that now from the age of five to seven at the hands of a family member. And so I grew up in a very chaotic household. By the time that I was 12, my dad had lost everything. He was homeless. And so I also struggled because we lived in a very wealthy suburban neighborhood, but we were poor, basically. Like we were barely getting by. My mom had racked up like hundreds of thousands of dollars of credit card debt. There was times where we couldn't afford toilet paper. We had to use my dad's food stamps to like get enough food to get by. And so it was just nonstop chaos. I basically lived in a constant state of fight or flight my entire life. I didn't feel safe sleeping in my house. I never was like a good sleeper. I've always been an insomniac. And I just feel like it's because I never felt secure Mm -hmm. or loved. I mean, I guess I can't say that because I felt loved, but the love felt conditional. Yeah. And so the subliminal messaging, the subconscious programming, I talk about that a lot on my podcast, was your body's not your own. You're unworthy. You're unlovable. Um, And so it's no surprise that by the time I was 12, that like second year in middle school, I started looking for ways to escape. And at first it was sugar. And then it was cigarettes, and then it was warm beers from my friends' refrigerators in their garages, and then it was pills when I could find them. What ended up happening was when I was 14, I had a surgery, and I tried opiates for the very first time, and I felt safe for the first time in my whole life. Like, it provided me with a comfort that's indescribable. And... I quickly realized that this was what I needed to survive for the rest of my life. And I was going to do whatever it took to get that substance in my body. And so school had become really challenging. I had been in and out of homeschool programs. Um, I ended up getting my GED. I'm so grateful for that. And I was 16 years old, just about to turn 17. And my mom, who was this ex-model, playmate, you know, all the things, she was like, why don't you girls go out and by girls, she means me and Tess, uh, who was on my show as well, on E! And um, go out there and just see if you can make it in the entertainment industry. Like, I bet you could. And quickly we started getting all these jobs. Um, Wait, you were 17 at this time? 17. And I was doing like, Marilyn Manson music videos and Tess was partying and dating Kid Rock. And I mean, like it just went really fast. And we had this like alter ego. We lied to everybody, told them that we were 20 year old twins. We said 20. So that way they could never cart us or ideas. 
before you know it, like we're at every single hot spot in LA, like living this life. What's interesting and why we got the show was because we were raised in Ernest Holmes' The Science of Mind, which then became like the secret. And it was at that time where Oprah and everyone was like toting like manifest your dreams and all of this stuff was just happening. But we had been raised in that our whole life and um, also on a lot of Buddhist principles. But for us as a family unit, we, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the term spiritual bypassing, but we basically would like throw ourselves into spirituality. And you can see this in every single different religion where people claim to be super spiritual and to be doing all the things, but they're really hot messes on the inside. Mm -hmm. And so they're just pretending to like clutch their pearls while at home they're like having you know, threesomes with their husbands. Like, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, it's kind of like, it's like mm-hmm. dual life. But what happened was we we got, we got a show. We were working on this movie that was a like a college film, basically. And we met a producer who was like, you girls are hilarious. You should have your own reality show. And that's like one in a million chance. And mm-hmm. before you knew it, like we signed our contract with E and like the rest is kind of pop culture history. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's wild. And how old were you when you guys, were both of you when you guys signed that to do the reality show? I was barely, I think it was three days after my 18th birthday. Wow. So I was just a baby. Yeah, still a kid. Mm-hmm. Oh man. I know. I want to go into so many different things right now. I'm like, I want to ask you about what it's really like doing a reality show. Yeah. So my show got picked up on the premise that we were kind of like this alternative crunchy version to the Kardashians, right? Like we had tattoos and we believed in manifestation and we meditated and we did all of the things, right? And on the second day of filming, so then I can't avoid this topic, but um, so we signed our contract in June and in July, that's when the robbery of Orlando Bloom's house took place. And there's a lot of misconceptions because people, I was identified as like the bling ring leader. I think in the media, they portrayed it that way just because it's sexier that some girl that has a reality show was the leader of the bling ring, but that's not actually the truth. Yeah, they get more clicks like Yeah, that. like Nick, you know, that's the reason why Emma Watson played me in the movie, like the biggest actress in it, despite the fact that I had very, very little involvement. And this is not to say that I was some mother Teresa because I certainly wasn't, but I was also no robbery mastermind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you were 18. Right? I was 18, and I think Nick was maybe 19 at that time. And I had only, I didn't know Rachel Lee or any of the other members. I just knew Nick. And we were out partying one night, and basically, I came to like in a living room, being thrown a duffel bag, and I just and I talk about this in the book, the full sequence of events. But I just start stuffing like in Orlando Bloom's living room. Right? Yeah, but I didn't know whose living room it mm-hmm. was. I just knew like, okay, here we are. And I feel like for someone who's never been addicted to substances, you don't understand how you could end up in that situation. But when you're trying to survive as an addict, you often end up, I mean, I've been held at gunpoint. Like I, I've had all of the extremes where like I'm partying at Kid Rock's house and then that very same night I'm being held up at gunpoint in the valley trying to score some heroin. Like, It was very polarizing. It went really fast. My addiction took off really quickly. By the time I was 15, I was fully hooked on opiates. By the time I was 17, 
18. I was dabbling in heroin by the time I was 18. I was full on like IV intravenous drug addict using heroin every single day to survive. So it went really, really fast. And so what happened was um, I never spoke to Nick again after that night. I don't believe like I left his house the next morning and I was like, that was like too crazy for me. Like, and I'm crazy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like this is too much for me. And I, it was like a month later and the surveillance videos started to come out at Lindsay Lohan's house and Audrina Patridge's house and it's Nick and Rachel like robbing them. And I called the cops and I was like, I know who that person is in that video. Never heard back. So on the second day of filming in October, we signed in June. Now it's October. We're filming. We've been out partying all night. I get home took a Xanax to like knock out for five hours to wake up to redo it all over again. And the cops showed up to my house like an hour later. So I came home at like 4.30, took a Xanax, and at like 5.36 a.m., they knocked on the door. And they were there to arrest me, but I didn't think that. I was so high. I thought they were there to like question me because I knew who Nick was. Mm -hmm. They weren't. They had already arrested Nick. He said that I was at Orlando Bloom's house. I didn't know whose house it was at the time. And they were there to arrest me. So the show really took a huge turn. So what was supposed to be this like kind of hippie version of the Kardashians and this time where now yoga and all these things are becoming more popular, we were kind of at the forefront of that, turned into an 18-year-old heroin addict, which nobody knew that part, fighting for her life on national television. So it got pretty crazy. (laughs) Pretty wild. wild. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Well, the first time you did drugs, like, did you think it was kind of no big deal? Did you kind of know it was wrong, but you were willing to do it anyway because you wanted that safe feeling? I think it's a combination of both things. So my house was a house where my mom was like the party mom. Like, you can use drugs as long as it's here. Like, you're safe. You know, we hear about those stories all the time. My mom was like smoking pot with us when we were 15. Like, the pot and the alcohol, she didn't really see as a problem. And she didn't really understand our addiction to opiates until, like, we were too far gone. My first time trying the opiates was from a surgery. And I just know that. After the pain had gone away, I was still taking the pain pill and it just felt so good. And when I wouldn't have a pain pill, I felt really, really bad. And don't get me wrong, I was like already dabbling in Coke and crack and other substances, just abusing Adderall, whatever. But this became like a survival mechanism for me. Yeah. Do you feel like, and I don't even know if you know this information, but do you feel like that's the average age for kids to get into drugs is like 14, 15? Or do you feel like it's usually later? Like, do you feel like you got into it really early? So it's really interesting. I, My husband and I own a drug treatment center, Aloe House. And what we see is that 90 plus percent of our patients have childhood abuse. Of that childhood abuse, the vast majority have been sexually abused. Um, And that goes for both men and women. We treat primarily young people, um, which is a good thing. We're seeing more people in their mid to late 20s entering into treatment, at least for the first time, which is great. Mm -hmm. 
I would say this, that, and I don't know if you want me to get into the brain and how it works and all that, because that's like a horse. Okay. So our brains are really interesting. When we're born, we have this reptilian brain and it's in the back of our head. And that's kind of like the survival in us. Um, At the top of that is like the amygdala. That's the fight or flight response. And we needed that to develop first in the womb because we wouldn't have survived without it. And at the front of our brains, we have this thing called the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for all of your um, ability to like think things through. Think of it as like the parent in the room. Like it's going to tell you, whoa, like slow down. This isn't safe. That doesn't actually start really developing until around age 12. And it doesn't stop. 12. De- 12. Oh my gosh, that's late. And it, that's why I have to yell at my eight, my seven-year-old all the time, pick up your shoes, pick up your shoes, pick up your shoes, because she doesn't have the ability mm-hmm. to actually think things through consequence-wise, all of that, right? And so, um, and it doesn't finish developing until 28. And so, 28. oh my gosh. Yes. And so what happens is when you incur ch- uh, childhood trauma, specifically before age 14, your amygdala is constantly firing. Your reptilian brain is putting you in a state of fight or flight all the time, whether you like it or are actually in danger or not. And so it reduces the ability of the prefrontal cortex to develop properly. And so when you are offered that drug or alcohol for the first time, first of all, you probably already have a decreased amount of dopamine in your brain just because you've been through trauma or you're being neglected at home or whatever it might be. And so you use a substance and the brain goes, oh, I love this. Like, this is great. We should do this all the time. Like, you actually need this to survive. And so it is more common for people to start using drugs in those early teen years Mm -hmm. because it's strictly a survival mechanism. Now, many 15-year-olds get their wisdom teeth pulled and not, you know, I would say 90% of them aren't going to go, oh, this is great. How do I get heroin? <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Yeah. Like, So for that population of people who've been through trauma, and I wouldn't say 90%, I'd say that the vast majority, the way that we operate as a society um, is so broken and so backwards now that we're all traumatized to some degree or another. And now your listeners are going, no, I'm not. But the truth is, is that divorce rates are at 60%. If you came from a household of divorced parents, doesn't matter how amazing they were at co-parenting and whatever, breaking up that family unit affects you. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. And so there's trauma with big T's and there's trauma with little T's. And these little T traumas add up. But we know that for girls, one in four will be sexually abused. So we're walking around with 25% of the female population in the United States having dealt with sexual abuse or sexual assault, and they don't have the support or the tools to work through these things. That's insane. I didn't, first of all, going back to what you first said, I didn't know that it doesn't start developing until you're literally 12. Yeah. And that's when people expect you to have learned everything by then. Yeah. And that's why, you know, as a parent, a lot of the old school methods 
of spanking and timeouts and all of these things, we're, we're now learning from the Academy of Pediatrics, now that we're learning so much about the brain, that those things are actually harmful because behavioral modification doesn't work for somebody who can't Re- you, that you can't really reason with. Mm-hmm. That ability to reason doesn't start until 10 to 12 years old when they can think through consequences. So when your four-year-old grabs the paints out of the cupboard and paints the wall, you know what I mean? She's not thinking through, mom is going to come downstairs and find this and get mad at me mm-hmm. because I'm doing something wrong, you yeah, know? that's so interesting. Yeah. So when you talk about drugs with your kids or like for any parents who want to bring up the dangers of drugs and you know the classic is like say no just say no yeah that doesn't work yeah how do you (laughs) Um, go about it if dare worked then we would all be okay yeah um but the truth is that in the last decade half a million people have died from this and that doesn't include mental health and suicide so you know, we're having this epidemic that is still really silenced and and not sad because I know that it's everywhere, you know, as a treatment center owner, I know that it's everywhere from right here in the beautiful suburbs of Los Angeles to the rural parts of Ohio to the Midwest and Wisconsin to New York. Like, it does not discriminate. It affects families generationally. And it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. You know what I mean? It Mm -hmm. it just, it doesn't discriminate. So um, I'm really lucky. I got sober. So I went to jail and I went to jail twice and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I got sober at 19 in three days. I'll have nine years sober. So nearly a decade sober, which is amazing because I'm only 28 years old. And um, yeah, I, it's interesting. I have two children. They're still very young. And I believe in having age-appropriate conversations starting from when we're really young. So with the conversation with my three-year-old, and this is about, you know, everything from, you know, protecting our bodies to like, you know, basically what I'm saying is that trauma is at the underlying cause of almost every case of alcoholism and addiction that we see. And so if you can minimize trauma in your children's lives, the reality is that while they may dabble in drugs and alcohol, they're not going to become drug addicts, Mm -hmm. you know? They're not trying to escape. They're not trying to escape. Um, There's an amazing book on this for anyone who's out there that would love to read more. It's called Hold On to Your Kids by Dr. Gabor Mate. And I can't say enough good things. But basically the conversations that, I have with my kids at this age is, you know, we have conversations about our body parts, about the actual names for them. We have conversations about secrets that we don't keep secrets. The difference between a good secret and a bad secret, for instance, like throwing surprise party is a good secret. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but like keeping secrets about people touching our bodies or anything like that, that's a bad secret. And then we next moved on to red flag feelings. So like 
if something is making you feel like intuitively that there's something wrong, that little pit in your stomach feeling, and my seven-year-old gets this now, she actually said to me a few months ago around a family friend, like, oh, I got that like feeling in my stomach. And I was like, okay, then, you know, we, we know that that means that next time instead of big bear hugs, you want to high five. And so we learn how to communicate. So we build up our children's toolboxes in order to keep them safe and to become their best advocates. The conversation around cell phones and drugs and all of these things are ones that, and sex, are ones that we cannot shy away from any longer. I mean, with Yeah, obviously ignorance does not work. It does not work. And we know that dare and abstinence-based philosophies don't work. Um, And at this point, with the epidemic as bad as it is and the amount of overdoses we're having, we need to have very real conversations. I mean, now you can buy a pill press on Amazon and you can basically put whatever powder you want, slip it with fentanyl, stamp it to make it look like a Xanax bar. And so you could be at a party and thinking you're getting a Xanax, but you're getting a fentanyl-laced pill and it will kill you because fentanyl, like the tip of your finger, like that much fentanyl can kill a 120-pound girl. And so you just don't know what you're getting. And so we need to start having these conversations with our kids. We need to monitor their social media use. For me as a parent, I personally will not be allowing my children to have social media until they're at least 17 years old. Um, I do not blame you. No, it's crazy out there. Like, it's just just not worth it. Like— I would never forgive myself if my daughter died or was brought into sex trafficking or whatever it might be, you know, because I wanted to let her have social media. I just Mm -hmm. won't. So my kids will be eating flip phones. Sorry, kids. Like, you'll have to deal. (laughs) I survived Um, with a flip phone through most of high school. Yeah, like, you'll be okay. And I think really being present in our kids' lives makes a huge difference. I think it's really hard, especially when you in this day and age usually have two working parents. It's really challenging to be present, but being present as much as you can. And like in Dr. Gabor Mate's book that I just recommended, he says, you want your children's relationship with you to be more important than their relationship with their friends. They're going to want to go and hang out with their friends. And that's okay. You can't be a helicopter parent, but you have to be involved in their lives. Um, and I was just talking to my husband the other day. Like, we we have realistic expectations for our kids. I don't believe that, like, my kids are going to stay sober forever. Like, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen despite the fact that they'll know mm-hmm. in a later age, like, where we're at. And what we've been through. Um, but I'm not opposed to like drug testing my kid. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like I'm I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep them safe until they're out in the world on their own. Yeah. And they're comfortable talking to you. I was thinking of, you know, because obviously me and JC don't have kids yet, but it's so scary to know how do you talk about it? And like the more you talk about it, do they feel more curious? And then they want to do it. So you're like, oh, no. But um, my parents, when I was younger, they would always, once a month, my dad would talk to me and say, like, same kind of things about all of those subjects you were talking about. Like, hey, if somebody ever says, don't tell your parents, that means you should probably tell us. Like, even if I didn't know 
that it was necessarily bad. I knew that if someone said, hey, don't tell your parents about this, that I should go tell my parents. So then I knew at least in those years of now, I know that my brain was actually developing, that I could talk to them and then I could trust them with, you know, knowing what was right or wrong or what was harming me and they could protect me better. And this is not to say like everyone should be afraid like that all of your kids are going to become drug addicts and like everybody, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But it's to say that, that the way that we've been living and the way that we've been operating as a society is no longer sustainable. If it were, then we would be seeing incarceration rates going down. We would be seeing suicide rates going down. We'd be seeing overdose rates going down. And so we really do need to start taking a good hard look at ourselves and the way that we're operating as a society, the way that we're showing up as citizens and in our family units. And we need to start having these like hard conversations and getting emotional with people, which I think is still a real challenge for the vast majority of people who are so afraid to be vulnerable because they've been programmed to think that that makes them weak. Totally. Mm -hmm. What would your best advice, and I feel like I've heard this before, but what would your best advice be for someone who does have an addict in their life? Like, mm. how can can you help? Is Should you keep your distance and just love them? Like, what's the answer? Yeah, I love what you just said about, like, loving them. The old and traditional approach was based off of, like, Al-Anon, which is, you know, the program, the opposite of 12-step. Not opposite, but, like, the sister program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And The old model used to be cut them off, set boundaries, you know what I mean? Like these harsh punishments. And I think that that might have worked back in the day because it was a lot of wives dealing with like alcoholic husbands. But cutting off at your child who's addicted to heroin or meth and like letting them hit bottom usually means they're going to die. And so we're in this really challenging place in the recovery world and industry where, you know, we now see addicts as alcohol and alcoholics as traumatized children, right? We know that that's the case the vast majority of time. That doesn't excuse the behavior. You know, that's one of the first things that I learned in recovery is like, yes, all of these things happened. And yes, they were brutal. And I would never wish them on anyone else. But it's my responsibility to heal myself. Nobody else is going to step in and heal me. Um, And I need to do this work. I'll give an example with Tess, who continued to use for a few years after I got sober. And I kept putting her into treatment and putting her into treatment, doing these interventions. And then she'd relapse. And then I'd get really angry and I'd feel really frustrated and get really resentful. And so I had to really think, like, what's the messaging here? Like, every time she relapses, I'm reaffirming for her that I view her as a failure. That like she can't, why can't she get it together? All of the judgment, all of the anger. Um, And so one day I just asked her to come to brunch with me. I was like, can you, would you want to grab brunch? Like I really miss you. I hadn't seen her in months and months. I knew her addiction had gotten way worse than it was. And I just said like, I love you. And I just want to apologize for all the times that I forced you into treatment, basically, when you weren't ready. And so I just want to have like a relationship with you. Like, I want every addict and alcoholic out there to know, ooh, cue the emotions that like you're worthy of love and of 
respect and of peace and freedom, even if you feel like you're the worst person in the planet. Like, even if you're so, you know, and if and it was amazing, then that's the, you know, I no longer attend 12-step meetings, but in the beginning, like hearing other people's stories was so amazing for me because I was like, oh, I'm not the only person who's done this, you know? Mm-hmm. And so finding a community of people is just imperative, but you're worthy of love. Like the Alexis that was being like shamed by the public on a regular basis, who was a traumatized child, despite the fact that I was a twice convicted felon, despite the fact that I was a twice convicted felon, like I was still worthy of love and you are loved. Like maybe you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you don't have a relationship with your family, but like I love you. Like I care about you. And so I wanted Tess to know that like, in her addiction, despite how like crazy and chaotic and ugly and scary it looked like on the outside, like, I love you just the way you are right now. I don't care. You could do the worst thing and I would still love you because you're redeemable. Like, I'm not willing to give up hope on even like the most hopeless drug addict or alcoholic. And I'll go to the ends of the earth to try to like help you. And so the relationship was, I'll love you and I want to have a relationship with you. I won't give you money, but I'm happy to buy you lunch. And I mm-hmm. just want to talk to you and for you to know that you have a lifeline. And I think that that's so powerful. And in my experience, by using that love and a little bit of leverage, two, two weeks later, she got sober. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, and has been ever since. So <laughs> yeah. it's like, you know, it works. Yeah. It really does. Well, that's, I think that is so powerful. And that's something we talked to. We had a guest a couple weeks ago. Her name was Shelley, And we talked about abusive relationships. And she said a very similar thing. Like, you, you can't go around, I mean, for addiction, telling them, no, drugs are so bad. You have to get rid of these, blah, blah, blah. If you build them up, you don't talk about anything else. She was saying, don't talk about the boy that she's in a relationship with. Tell them that you love them that, and that yes. they're, you know, worthy of so much good stuff. Yeah. Then they will be able to on their own. And the you question, really and, and, them. and this is going down a rabbit hole, but the question, you know, that as a society, we live in this like puritanical society where it's like sex is bad and drugs are bad and all of these things are bad. But like, are drugs really bad? Because prior to... Um, westernization of our planet, like tribes and cultures used plant medicine on a regular basis in a beautiful way. And they didn't trash the planet and they cared about each other. And Mm -hmm. they like operated in these amazing systems. And like, for me, when people are like, well, why do you think all the addiction? It's like, well, look around. Like, it's not crazy to me that 50 plus percent of people have anxiety and feel stressed every day. And the solution is going to a psychiatrist and getting Xanax. And then before you know it, you're addicted to Xanax. Yeah. Like the drugs aren't actually the problem. In my opinion, we should legalize all drugs. I think that mass incarcerating a bunch of drug addicts that are really just traumatized children is absurd. And so the conversation needs to be like, why all the trauma and how do we heal the trauma? Mm -hmm. Because this is no longer sustainable. Yeah, I think as a society, we like to band-aid things. And I like, even when I'm sick, I annoy my husband so bad because I'll say, well, I do feel like this and I feel like this. And he's like, okay, well then just like take an Advil. And I'm like, I know, but why do I have a headache? I don't want to just like get rid of the headache. And I feel like we do that with so many things. Like we just want to put a band-aid on it. Like, okay, well, you're going to jail if you do drugs. It's like, well, like you just said, let's get to the bottom of why so many people are doing this and why as a society we can't get over this because obviously it's not working. And I'm living proof that like we are redeemable, right? And mm-hmm. it might not happen the first time. It might not happen the second time, but like we're worth it. I was 
And my second time that I was arrested was for possession charge. And the mandatory sentence for me, because I was on probation, was six years in prison. And so the judge, Peter Espinoza, I'll always say his name. I'm so grateful to this day. He sentenced me to a year in treatment and it saved my life. I've been sober ever since. So it's like, you know, and had I not gotten sober, then I wouldn't have started the treatment center. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I've literally helped like thousands and thousands of people get sober now. Had I not gotten sober, then I wouldn't have written the book that's been so impactful for so many people. And I wouldn't have the podcast now where we don't talk about addiction in every episode. I would say maybe one out of every four episodes, but Mm -hmm. it's always with like a stronger message because addiction is just like a part of my life. But I struggle, I've struggled with so much with every form of abuse, with so much trauma, so many life challenges, with mental health issues, with all of these things. And so I really created this platform as a, with the intention of creating a community of people who are on the road to recovery or who are just looking for like some techniques or some tools to add into their tool belt to get through this like crazy thing we experience as life, you Mm -hmm. know? Totally. Do you still feel like you have to fight your addiction every day Mm -hmm. or is it something that gets better with time? What does that look like? That's a really great question. Um, So for me, like it comes down to this. My Life used to be about checking out of my reality all the time. And that's where I came up with the name Recovering from Reality, which is my book and my podcast, because um, what I realized was that the this the shift that happened, and it wasn't until a couple of years into sobriety, was that I no longer needed or wanted to check out of life because despite the fact that life still shows up and that there's challenges, I felt stronger every time I'd get over a hurdle. And so I began to love to check in and I cared more about checking into my life, having these amazing relationships, having a meditation practice, learning all of the little pieces that make up my spirit and my soul and who I am, having a relationship with God. Like all of these things became the forefront of my life. And so before I knew it, it had been years before I went like, how am I going to get loaded and high? And that was it for me. It's just like the freedom from the obsession was really lifted when I really had dealt with that underlying trauma and started to create the life that I wanted to create. Because when I was a twice convicted felon, junkie, had no time was unemployable, all of those things. Like, of course I wanted to check out in those early days. That was a lot to deal with. But once I started chipping away and building up, like I always say, we build up self-esteem by doing esteemable acts. And so as every time I would like volunteer at the women's shelter, every time I would do these little tiny things, all of a sudden I felt like, oh, I'm actually like a contributing member of society and I feel valued and cared for and cared about. So Um, To answer your question, 99.9% of the time, no. And I've been through really, really huge struggles and hurdles in my life. Are there days where I look at my husband and go, I just need to go to sleep and start over again? Yes. On those days, do I sometimes think, 
God, what would it be like to have like a five o'clock glass of wine and to unwind before I get my like two crazy kids into bed? I would be totally Mm -hmm. BSing you guys. Like if I didn't, if I said no, like, oh, that like never crosses my mind. Like it would absolutely be nice on those really long work days or when Brian back there sends me an email saying that something went wrong or did something, you know, and it's just like a compiling of stuff Mm -hmm. to have that like stress relief. But I've learned healthy tools now. So on those nights, it is like, okay, I know you're going to hate this to Evan, my husband, but like I need to crawl into bed and like watch The Bachelor and just like turn my brain off and like watch junk TV for the next hour and a half and nobody talk to me. You know what I mean? So So it is, it's the self-care, you know, and like the self-analyzing that just gets me through now. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like it would be, like you said, misleading to other people who are, recovering thinking oh well if I do think about drugs again and doing it then I'm bad and I'm 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 just set up for failure for sure but knowing it's good to know like you're still going to yeah feel that way and want to that's perfectly normal yeah it's just that you get the tools along Mm -hmm. the way and you start to realize if I could give you like a visual it's like when you first get sober or start into consciousness work at all or start working on yourself you're at the bottom of a huge mountain of like Mount Everest and everything around you feels so big like even the teeniest little thing it can look like you know whatever it's huge because it's there in front of you But when you start raising up in your consciousness, dealing with subconscious belief systems, healing from trauma, having healthy relationships, starting to do the self-care stuff, all of that stuff, when you hit the top of that mountain and you look down, all of the rest of it seems so small and insignificant. And so the goal is to like hit that self-actualization, that top of the mountain, and then everything else seems small. And there are absolutely days. I had a very hard week the last couple of weeks. I've been back and forth to New York. My kids have seen me like five hours total for the whole week. It was so stressful where I'm like, this sucks. Like I'm not happy. But then instead of drinking, which the vast majority of the population does, and no judgment, I get it. I can go, why does this suck? Sucks because I'm not taking care of myself. It sucks because I'm overscheduling my life. It sucks because I'm driving to LA five days a week. It sucks because all these things. So then it's like, okay, so you got to adjust. Again, not putting a Band-Aid on it for sure. Well, you are an amazing person, I must say. I feel like we could literally go on for three (laughs) more hours and get so much good stuff. But you, we talked about this a little bit before. You're a doula now. Yeah. As a hobby and you love it. So. Again, me and JC have never experienced birth. We don't have any children. What is something, one little piece of advice you could give us for our first time? Something Mm. we don't hear often. Yeah. I know there's a lot of it, so. There's so much, and you guys can DM me or, like, hit me up when you do decide to have kids. I think the biggest thing is, like, follow your intuition. Don't listen to people's scary birth stories. Don't watch the movies about, like, how birth is because I think it paints, like, a really scary picture. And instead, trust your intuition. Like, if you don't like your doctor, get a new doctor. If you don't like that doctor, look into a midwife. If you want to have birth support because you've never gone through it again, get a doula. Like, do things your way. Don't listen to your parents' influence or the thing that you heard on that podcast. You need to trust your intuition. And I think that that's like, that will always be your greatest guide. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, what... Kind of explain in brief terms what a doula does. And then if you think everyone should 
get a doula or if you think, <laughs> you know, only if you're going all natural or yeah. your thoughts. So um, I got into this work because I had a really traumatic birth experience with my first daughter. And I realized as a sexual abuse survivor how challenging labor and delivery can be for women who have had sexual abuse. And so I got into this work to support specifically that population of people. But I have worked with many women who have never dealt with abuse that just like really connected with me and wanted to hire me as their doula. So it's something that, like I always say, you have to do things that like light your soul on fire and birth work is that for me, you know? Um, so we provide emotional, I say spiritual and physical support throughout the process of the, typically through the end of your pregnancy, labor and delivery. And then I always stay after and make sure babies are nursing well, if that's a goal for you. And then do a couple follow-ups in the next few weeks while there's a lot of hormonal shifts. I think that's something that a lot of people don't talk about is the emotional kind of come down after birth. I believe that every woman should have a doula if she wants one. Right now in the U.S., we have the highest maternal mortality rate of any westernized country, and it's rising. We also have a super high infant mortality rate. 33% of women end up having a C-section, which is major surgery, when the World Health Organization says that anything above 8 to 10% is basically abusing that, you know, uh, method of of giving birth. too much. Too much. Wow. And so what we're seeing is— a lot of women having major surgery to give birth. And it's because of the way that insurance companies are are giving input into the hospitals and then it's hospital policy. So um, I think having somebody that can inform you about all these things, that can help you make informed decisions. My bottom line is this, whatever you want to do, I'll be your doula if you want a C-section. I don't care. I've been in many operating rooms. Um, I'll be your doula if you want an epidural at six centimeters. I don't care. I can still, there's still lots for me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, when you get that epidural, they turn it down right before you start pushing so you can feel pushing because you have to be able to feel where you're pushing in order to get yeah. that baby out. That's kind of like the most critical time. So um, birth support is an amazing thing. I think for me, it just, it always comes down to informed consent, whether that's about getting IV fluids, getting an epidural, opting for a C-section, breastfeeding, bottle feeding, circumcision, whatever it might be, you need to know vaccination, all of it. You need to know all of the pros, all of the cons, every single option that you have, and then make an informed decision. Because at the end of the day, if you make that decision and something does go wrong, you need to be able to say like, okay, but I weighed all of the options and I knew that this was a possibility and here we are and it's okay Mm -hmm. because we did the best we could. Yeah, you chose the best option available for you. And there's so many options. That's the thing. When I make, I don't like calling them birth plans because I feel like birth plan, like we get too attached to the outcome and birth is something that you can, you never know what's going to happen. So I say make a birth preferences list. And that list is so long. Like people don't realize how many options they have. Like when, you know, do you want skin to skin? Do you want to delay the cord clamping? Do you want to circumcise? Do you want to give hep B? Do you want the eye ointment? Do you want X amount of vaginal exams? Do you want all, I mean, like there's wow. so many options Literally that don't you even have. know what half of those things yeah. are that you just and, said. But most women don't. And then they go into the hospital and all of these things are happening to them. 
instead of them making the choice. Mm -hmm. And that's where we lose informed consent and where things can go wrong. And I'm sure it adds so much stress. Like I can picture giving birth and not knowing that stuff. And they're like, oh, we're going to do this to your baby. And I'm like, wait, uh, I guess, okay. Like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. So I can see how that'd be very helpful. And I was, that was going to be my next question is if you should have a birth plan, because I've heard so many people, like I knew a girl who completely planned to get an epidural. She had no intent of going natural, but then she had to because of some complications and they couldn't give her a certain thing. That's why you want a doula. Yeah. And she was so (laughs) not mentally prepared for that. So anyway, that is hard. And then that's where we see an increase in PTSD and postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. It's because um, we're in a really, in the most vulnerable situation of our life. And all of these things are happening to us. Mm -hmm. We're not deciding whether they happen or not yeah and like that you're just thrown through it thrown through it yeah well when we get pregnant yeah. we're gonna have you on again okay. for a whole 100%. birth podcast <laughs> thank you so much mm-hmm. for coming on and tell everyone your instagram and where they can find yeah. your podcast and book and everything so you can follow me personally at it's alexis haynes on instagram or if you want to follow along with the podcast, it's at Recovering From Reality. And I also have a podcast on this network, Recovering From Reality, where we dive into all things mental health. And like I said, building up that toolbox, which I think is so important. We have epic guests and I just love it. Or you can visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. Amazing. I love and it. And go buy my book. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's on read, Amazon. Go read her book. It's really, really good. Thank you. You guys can follow us at What We Said Podcast. That's where we post all of our information, all of the BTS of our guests, information on upcoming live shows, our merch, all of that good stuff. And you guys want to be extra nice and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. That helps us so, so much. So please do that. Thank you guys for all your support. And that's That's what what we said. said. Bye. (laughs) 